Good morning, everybody. It is um, refreshing to see snow finally on the ground in winter, right? I, no. <laughs> well, for, for, for me, it's like if it's going to be cold outside, at least make it look different, you know? At, at least make it look somewhat pretty because then it's, it's just cold and no one likes that. Well, today we are going to be in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 8. It's in your bulletin, but then if you want to take a look at the Pew Bible, which we will be jumping around, taking a look at a few other stuff. Um, in the Pew Bible, it's on page 1201, 1201, or 1201, depending on um, how you want to look at it. So I feel like every time the power goes out, we realize how much we take power for granted, right? And yes, I know, Patrick also started his sermon with this last week, but power's a big deal to us. It's weird when it goes out. Every time we flick the switch, we expect the power to go on, and when it doesn't, that's just weird, right? I feel like we expect a lot of things to just happen, right? We take a lot of things for granted, We expect grocery stores to have our food, and we're always so shocked when they're out of stock of something, like, what, other people want the same thing? No way. Or we expect banks to hold on to our money, right? If we would just log into our bank account and see that it's a couple cents off, we would flip out, right? Or we expect for it to be warm or cold outside, depending on what season it is. And it's a little weird when you walk outside during winter and it's 60 degrees. Or even just thinking on a much bigger scale, we go to bed every single night expecting to wake up in the morning. Now, I I say none of this to make you guys anxious or nervous or anything, but we have certainly seen that, like when the power goes out, there's complex systems holding those things in place. There's a lot of work behind those comforts that we take. We lose power during the storm. Supply chains have issues and grocery stores can't get what they need. Stocks rise and fall. The weather is affected by all sorts of things. So what is something that we can most certainly rely on? What's something that will never let us down? And I'm not saying what's something with a 99% chance it will never let us down. No, what's something that 100% will never let us down? Our text today is from the book of Romans, which is a letter written by Paul to the church of Rome. The book of Romans has a lot in it, a lot, a lot, a lot, but we are just going to be focusing on the very end of chapter 8. And Paul will argue in our text today that nothing can separate us from the love of God, and we will never be be separated from the love of God. Not 99% chance, not we may never be separated, not we might never be separated, but that we never truly will be separated from the love of God. And this makes us more than conquerors through God who loves us. That's what Paul says. But what does that phrase even mean? I'm sure we've heard that all before, that biblical phrase, more than conquerors. A lot of worship bands think it's a catchy album title. But what does it mean for real? We know that a conqueror is someone that achieves victory. What is more than achieving victory? What does that mean and how does that relate to God's love? 
Let's read our text today and find out. Romans 8, once again on page 1201, starting in verse 28. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, I think, I think that deserves an amen. So today we're going to do something a little different. Don't freak out on me. We're going to start breaking down the text from the middle rather than the beginning. Okay, so we're going to start by looking at verses 31 to 34. Paul starts off in 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? Again, we'll get to what these things is referring to in a minute. But first, we got to look at the response. Whatever he is talking about, it deserves a response. He says, what then shall we say? You can't just sit idly by. You have to say something in response to this. Like when you get offered an amazing job or promotion, you don't just ignore it. You respond, even if just to respectfully decline. You have to say something. It would be really awkward if you get proposed to and you just ignore them and walk away, right? If you otherwise get a fantastic personal offer, you respond. Even when something bad happens, it warrants a response. So whatever Paul is presenting here, it's clearly so important that it, was, it requires a response from the people of God. So what is this response that Paul gives? Take a look at verse 32 with me. The response that Paul gives is, He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So we see three separate claims here. Number one, God gave up his son for us, so he will also give us all things. Number two, Christ saved us, so we cannot be accused. And then number three, Christ is interceding for us, so we cannot be condemned. So summed up in a nice little one-sentence package, Paul is essentially saying, God gave us his son along with all things so we cannot be accused or condemned. That sounds really great, right? The conclusion is, even though we continually sin, 
If we are in Christ, then we cannot be accused or condemned of that sin. And God is gracious for what he gives to us. So that was the response that Paul gave. That's the conclusion that Paul came to. So now let's see what the statement was that fueled that response. Let's read the evidence, right, that fueled this conclusion. Look at verses 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I I know it's a lot, and... Even just one sentence, and that could be an entire sermon. But we're going to break it down sentence by sentence to truly understand why Paul gave the conclusion that he gave. First, verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God is sovereign over everything. We know that because if he wasn't, then he wouldn't be God. He knows all things past, present, and future, Since he's God, he also ordains all things past, present, and future according to his purposes. It's not random. God doesn't just roll the dice. He is God. He predetermines it. He ordains it. And he ordains all things for good. That doesn't mean he ordains all things for profit. Doesn't mean he ordains all things for perfect health doesn't mean that he ordains all things for perfect happiness even. It means he ordains all things for good, for the glory of his name and the growth and faith of his people. Next is verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now God knew us before we were even born. He knows every hair on our head. He knows every second of our lives. As I said before, he knows all things past, present, and future. He ordains all things past, present, and future. If he didn't, he wouldn't be God. Because of this, he knew and he chose who would come to know him and grow in faith in him. He knew who would be sanctified, which means to become more like Christ. If he didn't have that knowledge or that power to choose who would come to him or know who would come to him, then he wouldn't be God. But thankfully, he is God, and he is in control over all. Finally, verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And for those whom he called, he also justified. And for those he justified, he also glorified. Those whom God brought to faith, have also been justified and glorified by him. They have been justified, which means that God has taken away their penalty for sin, right? The justice has been given. It's been given to Christ instead of us. They've been justified. And they've been glorified by togetherness with him after death in heaven. So uh, glorified means. Now being saved, as we see in this verse here, is a lifelong process, right? predestined, to called, to justified, to glorified. It's not just God saves you and then, all right, go back out there, have fun. No, he is with us every step of the way. 
Now, all of these things are summed up in as what we commonly know as the gospel, right? God knows and ordains all things past, present, and future. His creation constantly chooses sin, so God came down in human form, Jesus Christ, and lived a perfect life only to take our penalty for sin on the cross, which is death. After that, he rose from the dead three days later to defeat death, and now anyone who puts their faith in him will be set free from sin through the Holy Spirit working through us. And when we die, we will not be taken by death, but will be with God in heaven forever. Now, all that Paul just said in those past three verses are essentially a more theologically rich, big word version of the gospel, right? But all of it is summed up in the gospel that we know. And to that gospel, Paul writes what? He writes, what then shall we say to these things? What do we say? That warrants a response. What would you say to those things? You say hallelujah, amen. But genuinely, I, I, I don't just mean this to, to say it and then to, to have a, a moment of silence and to, and to be like re- reflected, but genuinely, how do you respond to this? If this is true, if this is real, then this is quite possibly the crazy, right? This warrants a response. But is that response praise? Hallelujah? Or is that praise, or is that response indifference? Is that response faith? Or is that response anger? Is that response humility? Or is that response pride? Let's remind ourselves about how Paul responded. Remember his response was in verses 31 to 34. He wrote, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Remember that we summed up all these claims in one sentence. God gave us his son along with all things and we cannot be accused or condemned. Now, where do you think Paul will go from here? If you were writing this and if you just wrote that sentence, if you're trying to follow that chain of thought, where would you go from there? Would you misinterpret this to mean that you can live however you want? I can't be condemned or accused. That sounds like it will hold up in court. That sounds pretty good. But, I mean, that's still living a life in sin. And remember, refusing to be sanctified, refusing to be made more like Christ is still a sin. God is making us sinless, not sinful. Or would you consider yourself to be in debt to God for all that he has done for you? Would you try to live a life of perfection to make up for the free gift that he has given, even though it's free? Or would you say that it's completely unbelievable and therefore cannot be believed that God somehow, some way, made a mistake? That there's no way something like this could happen because you or the world does not deserve a gift like that. Paul takes a different approach in the following verses. 
He looks at all that has been presented here. The gospel, the big words, cannot be uh, condemned or accused. All of that. He takes a look at all of that and he can only come to one conclusion. God loves us more than we could ever imagine. Picture what you love most in the world. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your child or children. Maybe it's your parents, whoever it may be. That is only a shadow, a glimpse, a taste of the love that God has for us. We know that because unfortunately with human relationships, sin can break them up. Family gets estranged, people hurt each other, divorces occur. But the love of God for his people is so strong that nothing can break it. Look at what Paul says in verses 35 to 39. He writes, What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Take a moment to really let these verses settle in. Because it's incredible. I'm just going to read it again. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sleep to be shattered. No. And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, first, Paul gives a list of things that cannot separate us from the love of God. Right? He mentions tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. All of these are very real, very physical, dangerous things that threaten us every day. Essentially, Paul is saying that the situations we may face in the world do not take away God's love for us, and therefore, not a showing of his lack of love for us. And this is important. Because a lot of people think the opposite. A lot of people think that just because trials and tribulations occur in your life means that God doesn't love you. Or to say it another way, God only loves you if your life is going well. And again, may I add, if your life is, only, if your life is going well according to you, according to how you would measure your life going well or not. That's incorrect. And this passage is a really good example why. If your life is going well for you, does that mean that God is blessing you and is it a sign of God's blessing and love? Yes, it can definitely mean that. 
Can it also mean that it's a sign of God's judgment, allowing you to be given over to various sins and idols? Also, yes. We see examples of both in the Bible. But this passage is very clear. That God's love is not based on whether or not our life is going well, because that can't separate us from the love of God. It's based on who He is. We see that more plainly in the next section. Paul quotes a verse, which is probably a little unfamiliar to us and seems a little bit out of context. The verse is, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now this verse comes from Psalm 44, which is written by God's people pleading for him to arise and help them. Now we're actually going to turn to this because I want us to be completely full of understanding of why Paul included this verse. So it's on page 596, 596 in the Pew Bible, Psalm 44. So first in this psalm, the writer says that he remembers being told about how great and powerful God is and that he trusts in God completely. Verse 1 says, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you have performed in their days. And then verses 6 through 8 say, For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we are boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. So far, so good, right? Sounds like this group is a great example of living a godly life. Nothing bad will happen to them. They take God's instructions from their parents. They trust in God completely, even more than themselves and their own weapons. But then it takes a little bit of a turn in the rest of the chapter. Verse 9 says, But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. Now the psalmist thinks in this following section that God has forgotten them because of the trial that they're currently going through. He says that God has scattered them, sold them, even so far as to make them a laughingstock. He then writes in verse 17, That all of this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. He says that they have remained faithful, and yet they are still being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And that's the verse that Paul quotes. The psalm then ends in the last couple of verses with an appeal to God to arise, awaken, and redeem his people. Now, it's interesting what Paul's response to this is, right? He quotes that verse, and then the first word after quoting that verse is literally no. He says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, it's interesting because when we read that psalm together, it doesn't really sound like they're conquering anything let alone being more than conquerors in any of these situations, right? And I think if we're honest, we can a lot of times feel like the psalmist that wrote this. We can wonder how God can love us when our trials are so heavy, when our pain is so monumental, when a crisis has overtaken us. 
We can wonder how God loves us when a family member or loved one dies. We can wonder where God is when everything that we've worked for has been taken away. Even today, we can wonder where God's love is when we're two years or so into a global pandemic that has killed so many and yet continues to injure and kill and drag us down into constant anxiety and fear. How can we be more than conquerors through this? All of our struggles, all of our tribulation is a result of sin. Sin causes pride, anger, selfishness. That covers a decent amount of worldly issues. Even the earth itself, the Bible says, is tainted by sin and is groaning to be remade. Groaning. Every trial, every battle can be summed up in God's people fighting against sin and the result of sin. But we read in the Bible that that battle has been won. In fact, it has been won with such a result that we are more than conquerors. But how can that be when we're still facing it today? Remember that Christ not only took our penalty for sin, which was death, but he defeated death on the cross. If we are his, then we cannot be condemned or accused by sin. We read that earlier. And we are slowly being freed from sin by the work of the Holy Spirit in us through sanctification, being made sinless. God's love gives us hope. And that hope is his work in us. We hope that this battle will be won, or that it has been won. We hope that the pain will be over, that we will go to heaven, that we will be with God. We hope. We come to church every Sunday to worship and to be reminded of that hope. But if that's true, if it's true that Christ has taken away our sin, that we are being sanctified, being made more like him, that we cannot be accused or condemned, that when we die, we will be taken to be with him in heaven, if all of that hope is true, then indeed we are more than conquerors. If that's true, then it's not just a victory, it's more than a victory. And we're not just conquerors because of what he has done, we are more than conquerors because of what he has done. We have to hope in this victory, and that gets us through trials. Remember earlier, Paul said, we know that for the good of, or for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is all things working together for good. The gospel is good, and the hope that we have in that is good. The hope that we have in God's victory over sin that victory is secure. And it's good and okay to mourn and to feel sad and to feel pain over the effects of sin in our world because it's real. Don't hear me coming up here and saying all of it is a result of sin. Don't, don't hear that as saying that it doesn't matter or that it's not painful or that it doesn't hurt. 
Because we know that it does. We all know that it does. I'm not going to pretend and say that it doesn't. Just because something is smaller in comparison to the entire world doesn't mean that it's unimportant. And we know that it's not unimportant to God. He knows every hair on our head. He cares for the smallest of spells. But a time is coming when that battle will be over and the victory will be God's and therefore ours. To make an analogy, this really helped me wrap my mind about it. I hope I can help you with it as well. Sometimes in sports games, something called a blowout can happen. This is when one team completely dominates the other and there is a slim to no chance of a comeback. Except, of course, in New England, we know about Super Bowl 51, but that's the exception to the rule. One of the biggest examples of a blowout was a 1916 game of college football where Georgia Tech defeated Cumberland College, get this, 222-0. to zero. In 2007, in baseball, this one's for Stephen watching at home, the Texas Rangers defeated Baltimore 30-3. to three. And this is baseball. Like, you score one every time. You don't score seven like with football. You guys know how baseball works. I'm sorry. And in 1965, this one really got me, Ned Jarrett won the NASCAR Southern 500, coming in first place after lapping the second place car 14 times, and the third and fourth place cars 19 times. Now with the gospel, God has completed a perfect blowout against Satan and sin. Even though the game is still going, we still feel the effects of sin on a daily basis. We still have to fight it. There's no coming back from the opposite side. It's over. It's done. Now, I I know it's not a perfect analogy, but I hope you can kind of see what I'm talking about here. Sin has lost. Satan has lost. The war is won. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So what does that analogy mean for our lives? What does this mean for various trials, tribulations, pain, and even death that we may experience and that a lot of people are experiencing right now? The Lord has achieved victory over sin. Even though we still feel the effects of sin on a daily basis, we have been set free from it and we trust that God is in control and is working all things for the good of those who love him. Even though we are still on the field, Playing the game, we can look up to the scoreboard and see that it's infinity to zero. It's over. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. He was right. But even after all of that, are we sure that nothing can take us away from God's love in this victory? What if we have doubts? Paul makes it very, very clear in this final section that there were no ifs, ands, or buts with God's love. He does it all in a final summary in verses 38 to 39. If you're still in Psalm 44, it's on page 1201. Remember, 1201. Verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Now, this is absolutely crazy. Because of all that God has done for us, because the war has been won and victory has been assured, because of all of these things that we just talked about, Paul can make such a wild and banana statement that nothing can separate us from the love of God. He's completely correct in that. For those who are saved in Christ, nothing can take us away. Death can't take us away because Christ has defeated death with the resurrection. Pain can't take us away because we have the Holy Spirit to strengthen us and the Savior who knows our pain because he lived it. Our sin can't take us away because it's been paid for on the cross. But not only that, let's list off the other things that Paul mentions. He mentions death or life, angels or rulers, present things or things to come, powers, height or depth, or anything else in all creation. Now that's a pretty extensive list. And it can be all summed up in one word, anything. God's love is more powerful than anything. But let's go through them anyway. First, death or life. As I mentioned before, death cannot separate us from the love of God because Jesus has defeated death with the resurrection. When we die, we will be taken to be with God in heaven. Nothing that can happen in life can separate us either because remember, God is in control over all of life because he is God who ordains it. Next is angels or rulers. Now the mention of angels here is interesting, right? What are those cute little chubby babies with wings going to do to hurt me? Paul includes the spiritual realm here. Spiritual angels, spiritual rulers. It's a reminder that we are also part of a spiritual war, a war that God has still already won. Angels, demons, they exist. Satan exists. Paul writes elsewhere in the book of Ephesians, he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, there's rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But even though we wrestle against these spiritual forces, the war has still been won. We're still playing the game, but it's a blowout. Not even these spiritual forces can separate us from the love of God. Next, Paul mentions present things or things to come. Now, this is pretty self-explanatory, but remember that God knows and is control past, present, and future. He knows that the war has been won. He knows that we have not been separated from his love. Powers. Anything with power is included here because God is the most powerful. He's God. Any type of power cannot remove us from the love of God. There's no special magic spell, special witchcraft, or anything of that nature that can separate us from the love of God. Next, he mentions height or depth. Nothing in physical existence or nothing in metaphorical height or metaphorical depth can separate us from the love of God. Not good times, not bad times, not really good times, not really bad times. Nothing. And then finally, Paul says, Anything else in creation. Probably should have done that one first to save myself the trouble. Literally nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If we are his, if we have been saved from our sin, then we are his forever. Now I know what you're thinking. I do. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what about this? What about that? What about the other thing? No. I think this is pretty clear. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. If you are scared of a life situation, 
Whether it be a difficult friend, a difficult family member, a difficult crisis, nothing can separate you from the love of God. This pandemic cannot separate us from the love of God. Upcoming tax season cannot separate us from the love of God. Sorry for reminding you, but it is coming. Politics cannot separate us from the love of God. World rulers, wars, events cannot separate us from the love of God. And do you want to know the best part? Not even you can separate yourself from the love of God. You cannot separate yourself from the love of God because the love of God is not dependent on you. It's dependent on him and his gospel. It's dependent on what he did 2,000 years ago. Nothing that you did, nothing you can do, nothing you will do can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If you have put your faith in him, then you are safe and secure in his love. You are saved, secure. If you don't believe that, if you don't think that the love of God is this powerful, if you think, well, God doesn't know what I've done, I'm afraid of what I will do, then you don't know how good God is. If you think that the love of God can be taken away from you, if you are his, then you don't just have a low view of yourself, you have a low view of God. No matter what you're thinking of, it cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus if you're his. If he has paid the penalty for your sin, then he has redeemed you and is sanctifying you through his word and Holy Spirit. If you're thinking something can take you away from the love of God, then you're probably thinking that thing is more powerful than God. And that's wrong. Nothing is more powerful than our God. The love and faithfulness of God is not dependent on how we feel. It's dependent on his gospel, which is true. But what if you don't know this love? If you haven't put your faith in God, if you are not his, if your sin has not been paid for, then you will not be resurrected in heaven, no matter how many good deeds you have done. Your sin cannot be taken away from you, no matter what you think you've done that earns that. It's not that the love of God was taken away from you. It was that you never had it in the first place. So you need to get it. The only way to be saved is through Christ Jesus. Paul wrote in the book of Timothy that there was one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. The book of John says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Faith in God's gospel is the only way to be saved. And this saving faith is only available from God. If you do not know him, pray, ask for this saving faith. Put your faith in him. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. The love of God knows no bounds and cannot be taken away. This isn't a subscription service that you have to keep praying for. No. If you're saved, then you are saved, secure, and nothing can separate you from his love. We started out today by wondering if there was anything that wouldn't let us down. We saw in Romans that there is one thing, 
God in his love. God is more incredible than we could ever imagine. He knows and ordains all things past, present, and future. He took our penalty for sin and rose from the dead three days later to defeat death. And now anyone who puts their faith in this gospel will be set free from sin through the Holy Spirit working in us. And when we die, we will not be taken by death, but will be in in heaven with God forever. And he did all of this out of love. He loves us. He loves us so, so, so much. More than my words can express. Nothing can separate us from this love. Nothing physical or spiritual, nothing past, present, or future, no power, no height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. Even you cannot separate yourself from the love of God if you have been truly saved by him because his love is not dependent on you. God's love is so powerful because he is love. So since we have been given such an amazing, immutable, never-ending love, how then shall we live? How should we treat others? How should we treat ourselves? How should we treat those we disagree with, those who threaten us, those who love us? We love only because the God of love first loved us. We are made in his image and therefore have an inherent desire to love even though our flesh kind of has an inherent desire to sin, and it's, it's not pretty. We must remember the God of love and the love that God has given us and the love we must give to others. So as we close, we're going to flip to one more section. It's on page 1304, 1 John 4. 1304, and we're going to start in verse 16. This entire section is writing about God's love. And now that we know how powerful God's love is, this should hit a little extra hard. 1 John 4, starting in verse 16. Hear this as we close. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. Lord God, what else can we say but thank you for your love? What else can we say besides that we are not worthy for your free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. What else can we say but thank you? What else can we say but praise you? Lord, we thank you for all that you have given us and all that you have done. We pray 
that we would feel your love, that we would seek your love, that we would worship you because of your love. Lord, we pray that we would learn from your love, that we would learn how to love others the way that you love us. And we thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. In Christ's name, amen.